Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, really good to see all of you, uh, fifth and sixth graders. Glad you get to stick with us today. Uh, hopefully you'll uh, enjoy today's sermon as we, uh, well, I'm not going to give that away quite yet. Uh, uh, if you're a first-time guest, my name is Aaron, a uh, teaching pastor here at Riverwood. Uh, when you walked in, hopefully you were given one of our handouts. Uh, in there are a bunch of announcements. I'm not going to take the time to go through those because I trust that the large majority of you know how to read. And if you don't know how to read, you may quietly and silently come up to me and ask me to explain the, the rest of them to you, and we won't embarrass you. Um, but inside of there is a connection card. Um, our church family fills that connection card out every week. Uh, we just fill out that top line, and then we use the back for prayer requests uh, when we sign up for things like serving at the food bank or serving at an event. So uh, by all means, uh, church family, go ahead and fill that out. But for any first-time guest that fills that out, we donate $5 to Compassion International. We realize it could be kind of awkward and strange to come in to a, a new church and they're trying to get your information and we want to like use that to make a difference. And so uh, Compassion is an organization that has a goal of releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. They work in local churches all around the globe, helping kids get an education, uh, getting a bit of food, um, you know, uh, making a, a difference. But the biggest difference they seek to make is to help these kids understand the gospel, to understand the heart of God for them, that God shows his love through Christ and the cross and the resurrection. So if you would like to help us make just a small difference in the life of a kid, please fill that out and uh, we will donate that $5 to Compassion International sometime in this next quarter. Um, but otherwise, no, no uh, pressure to fill that out. But if you do fill it out, just drop it in our giving box on your way out. Uh, that's where our church family puts in their uh, giving and their connection cards and we will collect those after. Um, and if you put any prayer requests on it, I can guarantee you that our elders will be praying uh, for you. Uh, our elders are not meeting this Wednesday, uh, but we are going to uh, still send out that information and we will continue to pray for you because we believe as elders that's one of our priorities. And so we'd be honored to, to come alongside you and pray for whatever it is that is burdening you and is on your heart. Um, I'd like to invite you to uh, serve with us uh, this Tuesday at the food pantry. Uh, every month, the Northeast Iowa Food Bank brings up a, a mobile food pantry, a truck. So if you are available to help us at about 4.30 to help unload the truck, take stuff inside the Waverly Civic Center, also known as City Hall. We set everything up, and then about 5.30, we open the doors, and there's usually a line, and we need a number of volunteers to just help people carry through. Most people walk out with about two boxes worth of food. They can't carry it all by themselves. So if we could have some volunteers, about 5.30 or so to help carry some of those things out, uh, we would really appreciate it. Uh, you can sign up either on your connection card or better yet, just go directly to that uh, URL on the screen uh, or also in your handouts and then uh, fill out their little form and that way they know to anticipate you and they can figure out if they're going to have enough numbers for volunteers. So if you are available on Tuesday, we would really, really appreciate it, as would our community. And then I'd like to invite you to come next week for our uh, annual Thanksgiving service. Uh, this ends up being one of my highlights of the year, just to hear the thanks of our, our church family, to hear what God is doing in your lives, to hear the great stuff and also the tough stuff. These are things that we all can be thankful for because God works in the midst of all of it. And so we want to hear from you. No one's going to be pressured to, to come, but there will be an open mic. And so if you need this next week to kind of prepare, give yourself some confidence, because I realize for some people, public speaking is the worst fear in the entire world. And yet this week, God may be saying to you, yeah, but I've been doing something and you need to share it. So we'd love to have you come next week and just enjoy as we worship God through song, prayer, and hearing uh, uh, one another give thanks to God.
Well, uh, yesterday was Veterans Day, uh, and so I would like to just take a moment to pray, to thank God for the veterans that uh, uh, are in our church family and in your extended families. Uh, If you have a veteran in your life, uh, would you make sure to tell them thank you? And if you are a veteran, I would like to say thank you. And so I would like to just take a moment to pray for our veterans and then pray for our morning. So if you would join me. Well, Heavenly Father, uh, we just want to pause before we uh, get to the sermon to say thank you. First, I just want to say thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did, how you willingly came to this earth. You lived the only sinless life that's ever been lived, and yet you went and died in the sinner's place to give us life. And we are so thankful and grateful for what you did. Lord, I want to thank you for this church family. Thank you for this group of people that you have uh, brought together. And I thank you for the things you were doing in our lives. I thank you for the, the great things that you've been doing here recently and throughout this past year. I also want to thank you for the tough things, the things that, that force us onto our knees, the things that uh, make us seek you, the, the things that are, create the opportunity for you to work in the ways that only you can work so that you receive the glory as we receive the joy. Lord, I, I want to also thank you for this morning, this chance to uh, worship you through song, to, to worship you like we are right now in prayer, to bow before your throne of grace with confidence because of what you have done for us through Christ. But also, God, I just thank you for the things that you're going to be saying to your people through your scriptures, through me, through your spirit. May you just accomplish something great today. But Lord, also, before we, we jump into things, we just want to pause and say thank you for putting us in this country. You've put us in a place that, that we have freedom to worship uh, a freedom to proclaim you, freedom in how to, to spend our time. And so we are so grateful for that. And there have been men and women who have willingly served our nation to help protect so many of those freedoms. Lord, some of us here were frustrated with maybe our government or with where culture's been going or with how things are, and yet we realize that we still have such a great nation, that you are working here, even when we have doubts about what is happening around us. Um, help us to see that you are at work and to realize that there have been men and women who've stepped up, who've, who've left family, who've given up so much to, to, to fight and to serve and to provide so that we could have this wonderful nation. And so, Lord, we pray for your blessing upon our veterans. We pray that as they uh, gave so selflessly of themselves, like Christ, that you would work, that you would bring comfort, you'd bring peace for those that fought in combat and are still struggling with mental health issues, I pray that they would seek you and you would be in the midst of that trial and struggle and that that tough moment would be what drives them to you and they would find freedom in Christ. We pray for the, the extended families who've maybe lost a loved one or maybe their loved one right now is deployed away. I, I, I pray, Father, for comfort for them as there's probably a bit of a hole in their heart. And help them to see how you, the God of all comfort, are with them and can, can provide and heal and restore. So Father, thank you for these veterans. I pray that you would help those that know you to continue to make you known. And for those who don't know you, to find you and begin to follow you. Because they gave such a great sacrifice to our nation. May they see the sacrifice of Christ for them. And now Lord, as we turn to the scriptures, may you be our teacher. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to what you have for us. Uh, we are all in very different places. So Father, help us to come today wanting to meet with you, not necessarily demanding that you say something specific, but instead we'd open up and we'd hear what you have for us. 
So God, may you use this next time to accomplish your will in our lives. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray it together. Amen. All right, how many of you like movies? Show of hands. Okay, that's what I figured would happen. A lot of hands. Now, have you ever asked yourself, why do you like movies? I mean, some of you might say, oh man, I I love filmmaking, I love photography, I love good acting, great dialogue. But if you think about it, what it boils down to is you like story. I, I doubt anyone here would say that their favorite movie is nothing but a two-hour loop of ocean waves coming in on the beach. I mean, that might be lovely. If you're on vacation, you probably would really enjoy that. But I doubt if you have two hours to spend, that that's what you're popping on YouTube. Maybe you put it in the background, but you are not riveting your attention on ocean waves because you want story. But for stories to be captivating, they have to have tension. There has to be some sort of struggle. Like no one would want to watch a 90 minute movie of Joe Schmo getting up in the morning, brushing his teeth, getting dressed, going to work, coming home, watching Netflix as he eats supper, going to bed only to repeat it. Like you would need some interruption to that repetition, some struggle for him to go through. That's what would capture your attention. Now, sometimes storytellers, the the, the tension that they throw in comes from some sort of peril. Like someone gets lost in the wilderness or maybe, you know, the, uh, they survive a plane crash, but how are they going to get back to civilization? Sometimes it's like a, a, a struggle of trying to achieve a certain dream or maybe battling against, you know, a health crisis or something. That's going to fall. Um, sorry, everyone, but I gave you the heads up. Um, but sometimes, and one of the most common ways to introduce struggle to introduce tension, to, to kind of get into this battle, is to pit good against evil. One of the most common ways is to insert some sort of villain into the story. And if you think about it, the most iconic movies, the best-selling movies, have a villain. Like right now, some of you are thinking of a villain. So turn to someone near you and share with them who's the first villain that comes to mind or maybe who your favorite movie villain is and then share why you kind of like that villain. Go ahead, turn to someone. All right, lots of bad guys are being shared right now. Hopefully I, yeah, thank you, Bastion. I just found out that I'm Bastion's favorite bad guy. Uh, But I'm not in a movie, so I don't count. Uh, All right, did anyone hear Darth Vader? Okay, I thought I'd see a few hands on that. Okay, how about Thanos? Oh, yeah, okay, I'd say he's probably one of my favorites. Uh, uh, Voldemort? Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't like Voldemort. Uh, I don't think you're supposed to like Voldemort, though. Uh, Sauron? Oh, okay, yeah, a couple. Gollum? 
Ah, see? Okay, there you go. You, you guys like going. All right. Did anyone say Harry and Marv from Home Alone? <laughs> no, come on. They're the best. They're absolutely the best. Well, I bring this up because today we're going to get to see a villain in Acts chapter 12, and we're going to see the struggle, the tension that exists. So if you brought a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 12, Acts 12. Uh, If you don't have a uh, Bible, we're going to be putting most of the scripture on the screen for you today so that you can read along. Uh, I just really think that your learning is going to go way deeper if you have your own copy of the scripture. So either download a Bible to your phone or stop by our resource table and take one of the paper copies that's there. And seriously, take it. That's our gift to you. We've given away tons of Bibles, and I find a lot of joy in letting people have those things and and make it their everyday um, Bible. Um, If you have heard more than one sermon in our series of through Acts, you've kind of caught on that this is a historical record. Now, Luke, the physician, is a phenomenal historian. He's given us all sorts of great detail as he records the history of the early church in the first century. Well, like a lot of history, he includes a lot of stories. And these stories have had tension. We've seen the tension between the, the Jewish leaders and, and what they've been doing from the outside, persecuting the early church. We've also seen a couple of stories where there have been some internal tension, things happening inside the church. And in many of these stories, there have been villains, some of them unnamed, some of them named. But today, we get a name, but not only do we see the name and see the tension, we get to see the demise, the defeat of this villain. So if your Bible is open there to Acts 12, Join me at verse 20. Acts 12, start at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. Because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. We met our villain, Herod, last week. We met him in verse 1. And we got to see some of his villainous acts. One of the reasons we know he's a villain is he had James, the brother of John, one of the apostles, arrested and killed. And because he saw how that pleased many of the Jewish leaders, he did another villainous act and had Peter arrested, fully intending to kill Peter as well. And then later in the story, we didn't spend much time on it last week, but he ends up killing the 16 soldiers that had been guarding Peter, two of whom were chained to Peter. And when Peter just miraculously disappears, he escapes and he questions them. He ends up killing them all. Herod was a villain. Now, last week I shared a little bit that uh, there's actually three Herods recorded in scripture. This Herod here in Acts 12 is Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of probably the most famous Herod, Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great was the one who was Herod, king of Israel at the time. Again, keep in mind they're underneath the the Roman Empire, so they're not truly kings. They just want to think that they are. But Herod the Great is the one who hears about Jesus and thinks, oh no, this is a threat to my throne. And so he sends soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all of the baby boys two years old and younger. 
he was a villain. Also, we see another Herod in scripture, Herod Antipas. He's the uncle as well as the brother-in-law of Herod Agrippa. I think the family, as I joked last week, I think the family reunions were kind of awkward there. But Herod Antipas was the one who was ruling when Jesus was crucified. If you remember the story, Pontius Pilate, who was the governor at that time, finds out that Jesus is from Galilee. Herod Antipas was not a very good leader, so they only gave him a little area. Pontius Pilate was kind of like his babysitter. And so he's like, oh, hey, I don't have to make a decision. We'll let little Herod take care of this matter. Well, Herod Antipas is excited to get to meet Jesus, but when Jesus won't talk and respond, he thinks, well, I'm just going to send him back to Pontius Pilate. And suddenly Pontius Pilate and Herod became good friends after that day. But Herod Antipas has also passed away by the time we're at Acts chapter 12. This Herod, Herod Agrippa, was half Jewish. All right? His grandfather was fully Idumean, but he's only half Idumean. His dad was Idumean. His mom was Jewish. And so he leans into his Jewishness as he's leading here in Jerusalem, in, over Israel. And so the Jewish people actually like him because he claims to be one of them. And yet he was educated in Rome. And so he is friends with all of the high government officials within the Roman Empire. And so that's why they put him over this whole region. And he doesn't have to have a Pontius Pilate to babysit him. He has complete control and power over his little region. And that's what makes him think that he has the freedom to arrest apostles and kill them. He is using this power as a villain. But now in today's story, we see him take his villainy even a step further. The people of Tyre and Sidon were, uh, it, the, these two little cities were north of Galilee, all right? Phoenicia is this region there. So the, it was not part of Israel. So these were not Jewish cities. Most of the people there were Greek, but they clearly were under his uh, authority and they were somehow dependent upon them for food distribution. Well, somehow there's some conflict came up. We don't know exactly what that was, but it angered Herod so much that it appears that he's blocked distributing any food to them. And so these representatives are starting to get a little desperate. And so somehow they get to set up a, a time to meet with Blastus. Blastus is this chamberlain is what it says. But think of it more like a chief of staff. And so they arrange with Blastus like, hey, could you set up a time with us to meet with Herod? Because we kind of need this food. Well, we learned in verse 19, we didn't really talk about it last week, but in verse 19, we see that uh, Herod ends up going over to Caesarea. You see, I, I circled Caesarea there for you. Goes over to Caesarea, he's got another palace there. And so the people from Tyre and Sidon come down to meet with him to try to enter into some sort of peace negotiation so that they can restore the distribution of food. Well, we find out from Luke that there's a bit of pomp and circumstance going on. It says that Herod puts on his royal robes and comes and sits in the throne. It's not just, you know, meeting in a back room, a conference room. Hey, let's talk this out. No, he wants them to see him in his glory and his splendor. Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, also records this story. And when he describes the royal robes of Herod, he says it was woven with silver. Now, I don't know if the whole entire thing was silver or if there was just like little lines. But if you think about how impressive that would be, you're wearing this robe and any sunlight is reflecting off of it. So you're shimmering. And this like is giving more of a display of his power and position to the people. And he sits on the throne and then delivers one of the greatest TED Talks any of them have ever heard. And they cry out, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, 
We don't know if they believed that or not. It's possible that they were simply saying those words to impress him, to flatter him, to appeal to his narcissistic side. Well, you know, all the good, bad villains, they, they, they want to think that they're great and wonderful. And so maybe that's what they're doing. Because if they find favor with him, if, if he thinks that they actually like him, then he'll give them their food. But maybe they really do believe it. I mean, they are Greek after all. The Greeks have multiple gods. And they hear this amazing oration. They see the shimmering robe. They're in awe of all that they see. And they're thinking, this cannot just be a mere mortal. This must be a god. Now, when Luke records this, his Jewish audience probably would have gasped a little bit. You see, the, the Jews know the Ten Commandments. The first commandment says, you shall have no other god before you. And so to them, this is absolutely, utterly ridiculous that these Greeks from Tyre and Sidon would be saying, the voice of a god. No, there's only one god. But we don't see God discipline the blasphemous statement of the people. Instead, we see God discipline Herod. Why? Luke tells us. If your Bible's still open there, look down at verse 23. It's right there in the middle phrase. Because he did not give God the glory. In other words, when Herod is sitting there on his throne in his shimmering robes and the people are crying out the voice of a God, he accepts it. He believes it. He doesn't do what Peter did a couple chapters prior. When Peter walked into Cornelius' house in chapter 10, Cornelius wanted to worship Peter. God had given Cornelius a vision. Reach out, bring in this guy, Peter. So Peter suddenly shows up. And so Cornelius wants to fall down because like God has sent this man. He must be worthy of worship. And Peter's like, whoa, 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 hang on. I'm just a man like you. Get up. Let me tell you about God. But that's not what Herod does. Herod doesn't even think for a moment. Whoa, 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 people, I'm just a man. Yeah, I'm richer than you. I'm better looking than you. Got nicer clothes than you. But still, I'm just a man. But he doesn't. Instead, he accepts their praise. He accepts their adulation. And for a moment, he thinks, I am God. And that was truly villainous. And the reason we know that he is thinking that he is God is all we have to do is go back and look at his actions. He's thinking, I can decide whether you can have food or not. I can arrest apostles. I can kill them. I can even decide to just eliminate my soldiers because I have the power. I am God. Now, we've already seen that he's not. I mean, he thought he could arrest Peter and kill him. He even put 16 soldiers around him, two of which were chained to Peter. And yet that was nothing to God. God brings him out. He escapes miraculously. Herod could do nothing about it. He wasn't God. But Herod's not going to let small little details like that bother him. Because he's just wowed the crowd. He's looking good. He's got all the power. Maybe they're right. Maybe I am God. And so God does to Herod what Herod could not do to Peter. Now, um, I used to be confused by uh, verse 23. Um, 
It, it, the, first part, the, the first phrase and the last phrase to me seemed to be contradictory. Uh, the first phrase says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. And so in my head, that meant some angel, whether he appeared physically or not, somehow like pulls out some sort of spiritual sword, stabs Herod, and down he goes and he's dead. But then the last phrase says that he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. It's like, well, wait a second. Eaten by worms? That, that sounds kind of slow and painful. Well, it turns out Josephus, the Jewish historian, helps us out a lot in understanding this. He records the same exact story, says that right after he gives this oration, he collapses, falls down in immense pain. He can't even walk. His guards carry him back to the palace where he lays in bed for five days and dies. They didn't have the medications to help take care of roundworm. They didn't know surgeries to help take out a, a tapeworm. And so somehow something got in there and it was a slow, painful death. And to die by worms was like an indication to people. They saw that as a sign of divine judgment. So even if Luke hadn't said, God killed Herod, everyone would have known God killed Herod because he died by worms. Now some people end up being really, really bothered by this. They're bothered that God would kill Herod. I mean, after all, we hear about the love of God. We hear about God's mercy. This doesn't sound very loving and merciful, does it? I mean, it, it sounds a little petty. I mean, like, the dude's, like, yeah, he's guilty of identity fraud. But, like, that deserves prison time. Or maybe, like, a really bad rash. But death penalty? Like, is God just that petty? Like, is he just that overly sensitive? If, if that's you, I, I'm going to say I'm actually glad you're a little bit bothered by this. I'm, I'm glad that the death of Herod just doesn't sit fully right with you. Because that means deep down, you value human life. We live in a culture right now that does not value human life. We live in a culture that celebrates death. We celebrate it in our movies. I will confess, I've watched all four John Wick films. Each of those films, he kills over a hundred people. It does not value human life. And yet I watched them. Yeah, go figure. We have video games that celebrate death. I think Grand Theft Auto is getting ready to release its like sixth or seventh version. It celebrates death. Even our politics. We, we sometimes take this culture of death and we reframe it. And we even give it titles like healthcare. We do not value human life. Last week, uh, down in Panama, a 77-year-old retired lawyer got caught up in a protest. Uh, it turns out that there was a copper mine in Panama that this Canadian company had a contract with. The 20-year contract came to an end. However, copper is really in high demand right now. This company was selling it off to China, who was using it, and, you know, several companies using it, and like microchips for computers and smartphones and smartwatches. And so they need this copper. And so this Canadian company wanted to re-up on the contract. However, they'd almost about plumbed out this mine. So they needed to expand. Well, that meant needing to purchase other land. Well, some people lived on that land. And some people didn't want to leave their land. So they wanted to protest. 
There are also some people who are saying that this mining was causing issues with the drinking water. And so there's some people saying we're concerned about the health of our children and our families. And so these protests broke out. Well, the protests were at one point were causing like $80 million a day affecting the economy. Like nothing was being able to move. So last Thursday, this lawyer, retired lawyer, was so fed up, he's sitting in the car, read one article that said it was his wife, another said it was his girlfriend, but apparently he said to her, this ends here. And he reaches into the glove box, pulls out a gun, and walks up. Approaches them and tells them they've got to move this stuff and let them through. And the protesters are like, no, not until the government meets our demands. And so he pulls out the gun and starts waving at them, saying, move it now. They don't. So he starts trying to move much of it himself. Well, Turns out there was a rock that was way too big, way too heavy for him to move. So he starts waving his gun saying, move this, move it, and they won't. And so he just callously shoots and kills one of the protesters. Several people run and flee, but another one comes at him like, what are you doing? And so he shoots and kills him too. Both of them were school teachers. This man valued his time more than he did the two lives of these protesters. Maybe these protesters were wrong in what they stand for. Maybe these protesters were wrong in how they were going about protesting. But they were not worthy of the death penalty. And yet this guy decided that they were. Because he valued his time more than their lives. But the reason I tell you the story isn't just because of that. It's because of the comments that I saw on Twitter after. I saw comments like, my man, my new hero, this guy makes bail, I'm going to buy him a beer. One person even said, hey, I rewrote your headline for you. Hostage kills two in attempt to escape uh, um, confinement. Right after this event happened, someone put together a poll on Twitter. Within 24 hours, over 7,000 people had taken it by Friday afternoon. And all the poll said was, was this man right or wrong? And 58% said he was right and justified in killing two protesters. And so if you were bothered by the death of Herod because you value human life, I want to applaud you because you are in the minority. However, I'm going to encourage you. If you are bothered that God would kill Herod in such a cruel way as to kill him by worms, a slow, painful death, then may you apply that to all people. Because it is wrong of you to sit there and complain that God would do that to Herod and yet kind of inwardly celebrate when someone else that you don't like dies. This means we have to value the lives of Jews and Palestinians right now. It means we need to value those who are white like most of us and those who are not. It means we need to value the elderly and the unborn. Because humans bear the image of God. He loves them. He's passionate for them. And so we need to value what he values. We need to value human life. But I also need to point out this wasn't some ninja that came in in the middle of the night. 
This wasn't someone attempting a coup attempt to get rid of Herod. There wasn't some unethical means going about here. This is God making the decision and God executing judgment. And I believe that God has the right to do this. Many of you know that I uh, am a wannabe graphics designer. I'm not nearly as good and talented as like Jody who actually does this for a job. But I, I enjoy doing it. I'm, I'm a hack, but I, I, I still design. So a lot of the graphics you see, I, that, that's me. But it's common for me to design something and later look at it and go, oh, that's embarrassing. That, 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 that's bad. I don't want anyone to see that. Or sometimes I even roll something out and you've all seen it and later I'm going, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. And so if I wanted to, I could go and delete it because I created it. But if I release something that you don't like, you would not have the right to go and delete it because it's my creation. Humans are God's creation. They bear his image. So if anyone has the right to kill humans, it's God. Now, thankfully, he doesn't just go about killing humans because he's bored or because he's had a bad day. He is just, he is good, he is fair, he's consistent. And I believe he is actually right and justified. I think he even had the compulsion, like he needed to kill Herod for several reasons. First, Herod is claiming to be a Jew. Well, one of the key aspects of Judaism is the Shema. Many of you know the Shema, you just don't know that you know it. Because the latter half of it says you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Jesus quotes it as part of when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? What you might not know is the first portion of it. It starts with, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. If Herod is truly the Jew he's claiming to be, he should immediately hear the people of Tyre and Sidon saying, the voice of a God, and he's thinking, no! Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's only one God, and I am not he. But he doesn't. Instead, he takes and accepts the praise. Rather than being like his robe and reflecting the glory back upon God, he tries to be a sponge and take it in because he's buying the lie. He's buying his own press. That he is God. Second, I desperately need a drink. Second, I want you, um, uh, I want you to realize some of his actions. He's been acting like God. He thought he had the right to kill James. He thought he had the right to kill Peter. He, he didn't accomplish it. He thought he had the authority to just kill off these 16 soldiers. He thinks he has the right to de deny people food, the very basic necessity of life. He's acting like he's God. And so this isn't some innocent guy who's gotten a little too big for his britches. This is a megalomaniac. This is a true villain who's using all of his power for himself. Rather than realizing that God entrusts responsibility to him to care for the people, he's trying to use the people to care for himself. But then I think also God is wanting to communicate to us. I want you to realize, whether Luke realized it or not, the Holy Spirit has put in a chiasm within chapter 12. 
uh, we've talked about chiasms before, but if you don't remember, or maybe this is your first time with us, a chiasm is a literary structure where the outer portions are parallel with one another and they work inward. So your, your top line, whether it's a poem or a story, the top first part of it and the last part of it are parallel with one another. Then the, the second line, the second to last are together and, and you work in and it's like a funnel. It's like an arrow pointing to the center point. And that center point is the key, most important part of the story or the poem. We have a chiasm here. We start with the death of James. We end with the death of Herod. And in the middle, we have the rescue of Peter. And through that, God is communicating that he is a God of rescue. Just as he rescued Jesus out of the tomb and brought him out alive, Peter was in a sense in a tomb. He was going to die in just a few hours, yet God brings him out alive. Instead of focusing on how God killed off Herod, you need to realize that God saved Peter. God is a God of rescue. And so whether Luke realizes it or not, he's actually pointing at the gospel. Because you are born in spiritual death, you will die a physical death, and yet in that, he can rescue you from your sin, bring you out of spiritual death, and even though you will die a physical death, you will remain spiritually alive eternally. The chiasm is God saying, I love you, I'm for you, I can rescue you, I can make you alive. And he accomplishes that through the death of the villain. But I think God is also communicating something else. I think he's trying to give us a warning in Exodus chapter 3, God has a conversation with Moses. Moses had been, he was born to a Jewish family, ends up being raised by an Egyptian family, ends up killing a soldier, uh, an Egyptian soldier, so he flees for his life and lives 40 years as a shepherd. Until one day as he's tending his sheep, this bush catches on fire, he goes to check it out, the bush isn't burning up, and suddenly God speaks out of the bush. And in that conversation, God basically says to Moses, I'm sending you back to Egypt. You're going to go and rescue my people. You're going to bring them out of slavery. And Moses is thinking, uh-uh, I am not going back there. Like, if I go back there, they're going to figure out who I am, and they're going to arrest me and kill me. No, no, I, I, I can't do it. So he starts coming up with excuses. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm not a very good leader. Uh, I, I stutter. You know, I, I'm not going to make a good voice piece for you, God. But one of the, the ways he tries to worm his way out of this is to say, well, you know, if I show up and they say, well, which God sent you? Like, uh, what do I say? Like, what, what's your name? And God says, I am. Now, some translations put it as, I am who I am. But God does not say, I am who I say I am. I am who I feel that I am. No, he just says, I am. God is, always has been, always will be. You had a start date. You have an unknown expiration date. But God has no beginning and no end. That is why the author of Hebrews says about Jesus Christ, God the Son, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God just is. He is, I am. But Herod was not. 
And yet when Herod stood there in his shiny robes, receiving the applause from the people, in that moment, it's like he's saying, I am. I am he. I am he who can give food and take it away. I am he who can kill apostles or let them live. I am he who has the power. And God is communicating to not just Herod and not just to the people of Tyre and Sidon, but to all of Israel and to all of the Roman Empire. No, not even your greatest are the I am. Only God is. He is I am. Herod is not. But we would be foolish to think that that's a Herod problem only. Because sometimes we make the same exact mistake that Herod did. We will have those weak moments where we might start to think, I am. If you've ever had moments where you're demanding, or where you are uh, insulted by a slight, or when you crave the spotlight, or you're jealous someone else gets it, when you pout because someone else gets the credit, when you don't get the attention that you think you deserve, it's possible that you are acting like Herod, wishing someone would recognize your greatness and make you feel like you are. But I think there's another warning in here. Not just the warning that we sometimes might act unintentionally like Herod. Sometimes I think we actually make the mistake of the people. That we put something else in the place of God. Anything that you give your primary attention, adulation, affection, you're in a sense saying, that's my God. It could be your job. It could be a specific person, relationship. It could be money. It could be technology, entertainment. I mean, almost anything. Anything that it takes, your thoughts, your energy, there's a chance that you're saying, that's my God. Now, I think all of us as humans fall into both pitfalls. I think we have moments where we fall into the Herod pitfall, wishing someone would recognize us as I am. And I think there are times where we fall into the pitfall where we put something else in the place of God and say, that is my I am. But chances are you tend to fall in one pit or the other more often. Which pit is that for you? Do you find yourself struggling with pride? Wishing it was all about you? Or do you find yourself putting something else in the place of God in your heart? So as we move into a time of communion, I want to encourage you to do two things. First, I'm going to encourage you that as, as you get those elements and you hold them, that you first spend some time in confession. Confess the pitfall that you have fallen into. Are you falling into Herod's pit? Or are you falling into the people's pit? Confess that. But then I want you to declare. I want you to take a moment and declare, he is God. I am not God. That thing or that person, that is not God. He is I am. So you're going to take a moment to confess, take a moment to declare, and then you're going to thank God for Christ by taking those elements. So I'll invite the worship team to uh, come up here.
Uh, if you are with us today and you are not a follower of Jesus, um, you're maybe wondering about communion. Maybe you've been part of a church tradition that has done this before. Uh, maybe you've, you know, participated in it. But if you're honest with yourself and you know, I'm not a follower of Jesus yet, then I'm just going to ask that you respectfully not come to these elements. It isn't because we're trying to deny something from you. It's that we want you to realize that this God, who, yes, he killed Herod, but he did it for you. He wants you to see that he is powerful. He is able to rescue. That just as you were born in spiritual death and you will one day die a physical death, he is able to give you spiritual life. And I want this moment to be that moment for you. You are not here by accident. You're not joining us online because of a mistake. God wants you to hear this because he loves you and he's for you. When most people realize the truth of the gospel, they end up saying a prayer. They kind of mark the moment. Oftentimes they find themselves just confessing their sin, acknowledging how they've fallen into the Herod or the, the people pits. And then they say, but Jesus, you gave your life for me so I now want to give my life to you. And in that moment, you are reborn. And that is why I don't want you to worry about these elements. I want you to have this conversation with God. But even if you are a first-time guest with us today, and you know that story, you have given your life to Christ, you know what he did for you through the cross and the empty tomb, then I invite you to come. Because these elements remind us of the story the most incredible story, the one that was filled with tension, the one that was filled with pain, the one that was filled with struggle, Jesus going to the cross for you. So I want you to be able to take those elements, to take that wafer and realize that that represents the body of Christ which was broken for you. I want you to open it up and take that juice into you, realizing his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. But before you do that, I want you to hold that cup and I want you to confess which pitfall do you come into more often and then I want you to declare that he is God. Heavenly Father, as we come to the communion table, I pray your Holy Spirit would meet us now. Lord, we, uh, we are so grateful for what you've done for us through the cross and the empty tomb. This is what we want to be identified by. This is what we want to be consumed with. We want you to be front and center. But Father, we live in a world that is bombarding us with all sorts of thoughts and images that are pulling us away from you. We have constant serpents trying to get us to eat of other fruits. But we want to eat of your good fruit of the gospel. And so Lord, help us to confess openly to you the ways that we have sought to be God to try to replace you, to fall into the same exact sin that Adam and Eve did and try and make it all about ourselves. But God, we also confess that we have moments where we put other things, other people before you. They consume our thoughts. They receive our money. They get all of our energy. They are the ones we give our affection to. And Lord, while so many of those people, so many of those things can be good and beautiful, they're not to replace you. So help us, Father, to declare that now, that you are God, not these people, not these things, you and you alone. Because you are one. We are to have no other gods before you. It is all about you. So Father, help us now to confess, help us to declare, to declare that you are good, to declare that you are powerful, to declare that you are loving, to declare that you are worthy of all of us. And Father, for the person that today is going to make today their spiritual birthday, may they have a moment 
where they sense your peace with them as they give everything to you, Father. That, that they would realize that there will be a party in heaven as they give their life to follow you. So Father, be in the midst of this holy moment. Do what you need to do to accomplish in our hearts and our minds for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At any time during the song, feel free to get up, go to the elements, bring it back to your table. This is your time to spend with the Lord. Let's do this in remembrance of him.